amazing. Absolutely amazing. Man, uh, the weather has been nuts the last week, hasn't it? Uh, you know, last week it was, it was freezing, and then all of a sudden we have a spring day and all those kinds of things. Uh, and then we've got more nuts weather uh, coming this week. Man, but uh, one of the things that I notice and, and I want to call to your attention is that, that it is foolish to fail to prepare. Uh, it's foolish to fail to prepare. And as we, you know, I was thinking about the weather and it being freezing outside. When it's, when it's cold, it's going to be below freezing. You've got to prepare, right? You've got to uh, take care of your pipes. You need to bring in your sensitive plants and your, your pets. You've got to bring in your kids. You can't kick them out of the house. My kids want to wear shorts and T-shirts when it's 20 degrees outside. Uh, they think they know better, but I, I know what happened last week when they went outside in shorts and T-shirt. They came right back in. Uh, it was cold out there. Uh, but you, you, have to, you have to prepare. It is foolish to fail to prepare. Now, as you think about your life, what are you preparing for? The famous self-help book author Stephen Covey says that successful people, effective people, they begin with the end in mind. Well, what are you preparing for? Maybe, maybe you're saving money for college or to or to buy a house, or to retire. Maybe you're studying really hard to earn a degree, or to prepare for a career. Maybe you're working really hard to, to earn that promotion at work. Maybe you're trying to prepare your kids, and you, you are soaking up all the time that you can to get them ready for this world that's crazy. Maybe, maybe you're a prepper, and you've got non-perishable goods stashed in a bunker somewhere, allegedly. Uh, what are you preparing for? Because you know that life is a vapor. It goes fast. And see, uh, there's all kinds of good things in this life, like, like you have sports and uh, books and movies and friends and celebrations. You have all of these good things that Ecclesiastes says God, one of the reasons God gives those things to us is a gift because if we didn't have those things, it would overwhelm us with sorrow and dread because the reality is there is an end. Life is a vapor, and are you prepared to face the end? In other words, it's beginning to rain. Are you ready? We're gonna be in Genesis chapter six. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bible. We have been in a series that we're calling Greatest Hits, the most Famous Bible stories that you can think of. Famous stories that, that you would find in any kid's storybook Bible on the shelf. The first week we looked at creation. Last week we looked at Adam and Eve. Well, this morning we're gonna consider the warm, fuzzy children's story, Noah's Ark. It's a great story. It's a wonderful story that we tell children. You know, there was gonna be a flood. God told Noah, build a boat. They get on the boat and the animals follow two by two and they're saved from the flood. It's a wonderful story. We, we cover the baby's nursery with Noah and the ark and there's pillows and books and pictures and bedding and toys. Noah's ark. But if, you, if you've ever thought about it, the story of Noah and the ark is absolutely horrific. 
Like at the end, every living creature dies. Every living creature not on the ark dies by drowning. You don't see that ending in the bedding and on the walls. And it's horrific. And, and we like to focus on, on the fun, kitty things in Noah's ark, but we don't stop to consider the truth, as the author of Hebrews says, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so we're gonna spend our time looking at the story of the flood. Now it covers, uh, the, uh, the story uh, is made up of you know, Genesis six through nine. We don't have time to look at all of that. I encourage you to just read that story today with your family or on your own. Um, we're just gonna, we're gonna take time to consider the events leading up to the flood is what we're gonna do today. And what we're gonna discover is this, it's beginning to rain. How are you gonna prepare? In other words, judgment is coming, and what are we going to do about it? So we're going to begin in verse 5 of chapter 6, uh, verses 5 through 7, and if you're taking notes and you wanted to make a heading, you, you could write, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming, Genesis 6, verses 5 through 7. Let's read those verses together. Here's what Moses wrote. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. This is the beginning of the story of the flood, and what we see is the earth's corruption, the Lord's sorrow, and the Lord's plan. In verse five, we see the earth's corruption, and I'm struck by this statement that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. That's a lot of words, and it's if you look at it, it's a really clunky sentence, but what's being described to us is the gravity of the wickedness of man. Man's thoughts are dominated by evil. It's not just that man did wicked things on accident, it's that man was plotting to do evil. He intends to do evil, and the way that Moses describes it is that the earth is corrupt. God's good world that he had made is now corrupt. You know, sometimes our world feels like that, doesn't it? Corrupt. Things are not functioning as they should. Wickedness seems to reign. In verse five, we see the corruption of the earth. In verse six, we see the Lord's sorrow. There's another striking statement there in verse six. It says that the Lord was sorry that he had made man. That the Lord was grieved in his Heart, that, that is hard to understand. How can it be that the Lord is sorry? I thought he was sovereign and in control of all things. Uh, a while back, I was reading this story to one of my daughters in their Bible. Their Bible translation is like written on a third grade level. And so they, they kind of translated this a little bit different and helped explain. It, it says that the Lord was, he was sad that he had made man. Now, I don't know how precise that theology is, 
but it makes sense to me if you think about what God had made. God had created all things and he had created man as the crown jewel of his creation and at the end of all that he had made, God said it was very good. Man was in tune with God in the garden. He had a purpose. He was fulfilled. He had all of his needs met. He was satisfied and man walked with God in the garden. But now, God's good world is corrupt and as for man, Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sad that he had made man. The Lord was sorry. That, that doesn't mean that he made a mistake. That's, that's not what that reference is. It's not a comment on the Lord's sovereignty. That is a, a comment on the Lord's emotion. The Lord wasn't sorry that He had made a mistake by making man. The Lord was sorry because of what man had made of himself. But I want you to notice the response of the Lord. It isn't just sadness. The Lord is not passive in the face of evil. Uh, When the Lord deals with evil, he, he never wrings his hands and wonders, oh no, whatever shall we do? What am I gonna do about this? Nor does the Lord ignore evil and sweep it under the rug. The grief in his heart, the sorrow that the Lord experienced was sadness about what man had made of himself, but I also believe that it was sadness because of what he intended to do. And he was going to judge wickedness. In verse seven, you see the Lord's plan. The Lord intends to blot out every living creature on the earth. This word blot out is a word that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament and and the, the image is a glass that you turn upside down, a dirty glass, and you wipe it clean from the inside. That is what the Lord intended to do to the earth, to wipe it clean, to blot out every living creature, all living things, I want you to look again at verse seven and I want you to notice the order of these living things as they're listed. It says man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. Notice what's missing, fish. He made fish, but the fish will be fine. It's gonna be a flood, right? They're good, okay? But notice the order. The order is the opposite of creation in Genesis one. Here's what's being shown to us. It is the Lord's intention to decreate the earth. He's going to uncreate the earth. He's gonna put it in reverse. See, judgment is coming, and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He is a righteous judge. He is just. And verse seven could be the end of the story of the universe. That could be it. God created all things, it didn't work out, so he decreates all things. But that's not how the story ends. We're introduced to a man in verses eight through 10, and if you you were taking notes, the heading you could put for verses eight through 10 is Noah walks with God. Noah walks with God. 
There in verse eight, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah. God's patience with mankind is over. Judgment is coming. But Noah. I would argue that that word, that conjunction, is the most valuable, beautiful words in the scriptures. The conjunction, but. The wickedness of man bothered God so much. It was so heinous that when Moses writes Genesis, he says words that are theologically confusing like God is sorry that he made man. That doesn't make sense to me. That's how heinous the wickedness of the earth was. And God's good creation, he intends to destroy. The crown jewel of his creation, mankind, he intends to wipe from the face of the planet. But then the most beautiful word in the Bible, but... Noah, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I want you to notice that this is before Noah built an ark. That Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Well, verse nine uses three words or phrases to tell us what kind of man Noah is. Look, look there, well, first it says, these are the generations of Noah. As you're reading Genesis, you should know when it says these are the generations of that's how Moses is putting in chapter markers. The chapters and verses were put in later. That's how he's shifting the subject. So as you see that, as you read through Genesis, you'll know, okay, his mind is shifting to a, a new subject here. But, but look what it says about Noah. Noah was a righteous man. That means that he did right things. Then it says Noah was blameless in his generation. That means that he was morally upright compared to the rest of his generation that we saw was wicked and dreamed up wicked and intended to do evil. He was blameless in his generation. And then the third phrase, it says, Noah walked with God. That's kind of a summary statement for the other two, that Noah was walking in the same direction as God. None of these words mean that Noah was perfect that he never sinned, he never made a mistake. It simply means that he was on the same page as God, that he saw things God's way, that he wanted to do things in the way that God wanted him to do them, that God's opinion of things is really all that mattered to Noah. So Noah walked with God. He was walking in the same direction. To walk with God is a theme in the scriptures. You'll see it time and time again. You actually saw it in Genesis chapter three. It describes that the Lord God himself used to walk around with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They had intimate relationship with one another. But then Adam and Eve sinned and that relationship was broken. They no longer literally walked with God. Walking with God shows up again just before the story of Noah in Genesis chapter five. Genesis chapter five is, the, is, is like a genealogy and there's this drum beat, this rhythm of death. This person lived and then they died and this person lived and then they died over and over and over. You see death, 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 death. And then that rhythm is interrupted by a man named Enoch. And it says that Enoch walked with God and then Enoch escaped death. Enoch was on the same page as God, and somehow, someway, in a way that we don't quite understand, he didn't experience death. And so now we're told, now Noah walks with God. So maybe we're being hinted at that maybe Noah will have the opportunity to escape death. 
But at this point in the story, Noah doesn't even know that a judgment's coming. We've been told that as the reader. But at this point, he doesn't even know. So what's required is somebody's got to warn Noah. And that's what we have in verses 11 through 13. Uh, The heading you could write is that God warns Noah. God warns Noah. Look in verse 11 with me. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. We get this description that we already had just a few verses earlier, that the earth is corrupt. Three times in those two verses, we are told that the earth is corrupt. It is ruined. God's good world is broken. It is spoiled. I don't know if you noticed this or not. It says in verse 12 that God saw the earth and behold. Have you heard those words before? When God created all things in Genesis chapter one, at the end of the days of creation, he would see something and God saw the light and it was good. But now God saw the earth that he had made, the good earth that he had made, but behold, it's not good anymore. It's corrupt. But then, Verse 13, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Noah was righteous and blameless and walked with God. The earth was corrupt, so so the Lord tells Noah what he intends to do. See, God warns Noah. Well, here's the next thing God does. God prepares Noah. You can write that down. Verse 14 through 21. God prepares Noah. Look with me in verse 14. Here's what God says to Noah. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. God prepares Noah. He tells him, build an ark, and he gives him specifics. Now, uh, just a few things to help you out. Uh, the word ark means box. That Hebrew word for ark is only used two times in two places in the scriptures. It's used here with Noah, and the only other time that it's referred to uh, is the story of Moses. When Moses is put in a basket and then placed in the Nile River when he's a baby in the Nile River to, su- uh, to survive the, the uh, Egyptian army or whatever, right? Um, that basket is the word ark, So Moses survived through an ark. Now he's writing a story that had happened before about Noah who survives with an ark. Um, And this is just to help you out. This doesn't really matter. But the word gopher wood, it's not referring to the animal. Uh, That word gopher uh, is a Hebrew word that they don't exactly know what it means. And so they just took the Hebrew word and planted it in the English translation. So uh, Steve Carell's movie, 
all wrong. It's not, go, it's not like an actual gopher, okay? Uh, so just that'll help you out uh, later on. But we get all of these specifications about how this ark would be built. It's not all the details that would be needed, but we get these specifications. Uh, by the way, it's, the shape is probably a barge, like a, a rectangle. Did you know that there are many flood accounts uh, from ancient cultures from all over the world? Did you know this? Uh, and many of these ancient cultures speak of a man and his family who survive on a boat. And, and we get the dimensions of many of these, these boats from all over the world, the, these descriptions of this flood. But here's what I want to point out to you. Uh, if you were to take those dimensions from those other stories, none of those boats would float. Every single one of them would sink. The only dimensions of a boat for the flood that actually would work are the dimensions given in Genesis chapter six. And what that explains to us, you know, there are those who would say, since there are so many flood accounts from all over the world, uh, that, that's just a myth that ancient cultures have told from the beginning of time. Uh, so there's no way it could be true. I actually personally believe the opposite, that since there are so many accounts uh, of a global catastrophe, a flood, that lends credibility that something happened. And if we have one description with a boat that actually floats, maybe I'm gonna lean into that one a little bit more. I believe the book of Genesis is telling the truth. But God says, build an ark. Why? Because he hasn't told him yet, but now he is. I'm gonna flood the earth. You're gonna wanna be on this boat. Look in verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of creeping things of the ground according to its kind. To every sort shall come into them, you shall keep alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. There you have, at the beginning of verse 18, one of the most beautiful words in the Bible, the conjunction, but. He says, I'm going to destroy the earth with a flood, and then verse 18, but Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. What the Lord is saying is, that, uh, Noah, I am committed to you, and I am going to preserve the good life that I have made. I'm gonna preserve Noah and his family and then some of every living creature on the earth. God is going to preserve life. And then verse 22 will be the last one we look at this morning. The heading you can put for verse 22 is that Noah obeys God. God warns Noah, God prepares Noah, but then Noah obeys God. Look what verse 22 says. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. What's interesting is that in the Hebrew, it literally reads, Noah did all that God has commanded him. He did it so. That sounds a whole lot like Genesis chapter one. God said, let there be light, and it was so. God said, let, let the sky be separated from the waters and the earth, and it was so. And now you have God said, Noah, build a boat, and it was so. 
All of creation obeyed God, and Noah is just kind of joining in with what all of creation had done. As I think about Noah's response here, I think about this question. What saved Noah? There was a flood coming. What saved him from the flood? You, you might be tempted to say a boat. And, and I want to say, well, not, not exactly. Hebrews eleven seven says that by faith, Noah being warned concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By faith, he built a boat. So what saved Noah? Well, it wasn't exactly the boat. It was that he believed God's words, that judgment is coming, and if you want to survive, you're going to build this boat, and you're going to get on it. So what, what saved Noah? Well, it was his faith. Well, how do I know that Noah had faith in God? Well, he built a boat. See, faith leads to obedience. How do I know if you have faith? Well, where's your obedience? Noah obeyed God. Now, that's just the lead up to the flood. You know, if you're wondering what happens, you're gonna have to read the rest of it. Uh, but what does this part mean for us? We have the story of a flood that judgment is coming, and this judgment here with Noah's ark points to a future judgment that is to come. There is a future judgment that is to come. But sometimes we wonder, don't we? We look around and it seems like the wicked always seem to prosper, like the one who's willing to step on everybody else to get what they want. They always seem to succeed, while the little guy who needs just a, a hand seems to always be pushed down. And we wonder, will the wicked ever get what they deserve? I mean, we look at the systems in our world and we see how things are just broken, they don't function as they should. That righteousness is not always preserved. There's so much injustice. There's so much brokenness. And we look at our, our world and we wonder, is judgment ever going to come? And there are people in our world. They wonder the same thing. Psalm, Psalm 10, they, they say things like, like Psalm 10. They say, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. Or they say things like, God has forgotten. God has hidden his face. God will never see it. I can get away with anything I want. There is no judgment. Will judgment ever come? I'm afraid that, that many of us actually function in the same way. We would say that we walk with God, but then we like get away with this thing over here and nobody notices and nobody sees and as long as I keep it to myself, nobody ever will know. So maybe God doesn't see. Maybe God doesn't care. Maybe there is no judgment. Richard Niebuhr assessed American thought when he said, we believe in a God without wrath who brings men without sin into a heaven without judgment. And our Contemporary culture says things like, God is love, and he would never judge me. And we wonder, will the judge of the earth do what is right? It's been a long time since we've had a, a really good thunderstorm roll through. 
Maybe we'll get one this week. When a, a good storm rolls through, there's a few things that you can count on. You, you can count on your grass turning green. Uh, if you've got like a leaky roof or a leaky window, you can count on water leaking in. You know where those spots are. You can count on uh, terrible drivers, and you can count on an accident on I-35. You're gonna be late to work. There's many things you can count on. There's, there's another thing you can count on. When you see the lightning, you know that you're going to hear thunder. It might be immediate. It might be delayed. But when there is lightning, you can know for certain there will be thunder. And I want to tell you this morning that lightning has struck. You see, the Lord Jesus, he was crucified. He died. He was buried in the grave. And then he rose from the grave. And then he ascended to his father. And now he sits at the right hand of his father. And he waits. Lightning has struck. And we're waiting for the thunder of his judgment. Is judgment really coming? Judgment is coming, and it is foolish, foolish to fail to prepare. Just as God instructed Noah to prepare for the judgment of the wicked, so too does the New Testament warn us of another impending judgment. The Old Testament prophets, they, they spoke of a day of the Lord that is to come. And there were many lowercase days of the Lord that did come when God would pour out his justice on the wicked. And so things like Jerusalem being taken over by the Babylonians, that's a lowercase day of the Lord. Or when the Babylonians were finally destroyed, that's a lowercase day of the Lord. Or in 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed by the Romans, that was a lowercase day of the Lord. But all of those lowercase days of the Lord pointed forward to a capital day of the Lord. A, a final day of the Lord, a, a day that is coming when the Lord Jesus will return and he will execute judgment on the wicked and he will exalt the righteous and he will judge sinners and every single person will have to answer for what they have done. And those of us who are in Christ, we wait for that day. We long for that day. It seems like it's never going to come, but we know that lightning has struck and the thunder will come. And the Lord Jesus, many of his parables had to do with this day of judgment, the day of the Lord. For example, he tells a parable in Matthew 13 of the weeds and the wheat. He says that the, the day of the Lord is going to be like a, a field that has weeds and wheat in it. And it's not going to be separated now, but later, on that day, we're gonna, separate, we're gonna separate out the weeds and the wheat, and the wheat will be gathered into the barn, but the weeds will be thrown into the fire. That's what Jesus says. This day of the Lord, this judgment day, that's actually the point of the book of Revelation. 
If you've ever sat down and, and read Revelation, that, that book is not about trying to figure out like, are, are Russia and China gonna get together? And, and how's America the hero? And th- that's not what Revelation is about at all. The, the point of the book of Revelation is that there will come a day when sovereign God is gonna bring this whole thing down. He did it by a flood the first time. It, it won't be water, it's gonna be fire. Judgment will come, and there will be an end for Satan, and there will be an end for death, and there will be an end for sin and for sorrow. The wicked will suffer the consequences of their sin, and the righteous, even though it feels like like we're losing now, we're not. Because what Revelation explains to us is is the way to win is to stick with Jesus no matter what. Even if they take your life from you, you stick with Jesus and that's victory. So the point of that book is prepare for the judgment to come. The the Old Testament prophets, they warned us and, and Jesus warned us and the book of Revelation warns us that judgment is coming. That day is coming and on that day, Where will you be found? When it started to rain, Noah was found in the ark. And it it started to rain, and the earth was covered with water over the mountaintops. And every living creature that was not on the ark or fish died. But Noah survived. And Noah survived the judgment by trusting God by trusting him and obeying him by building an ark and then entering into it. You know, the people of God often in the story of the Bible pass through the waters of judgment. They often do this. You know, Moses was, baby Moses was on the basket. He went through the Nile River safely. But then decades later in Moses' life, What does he do? He leads the people of Israel through the waters of the Red Sea. There was no ark to be found, so the Lord God split the sea and they crossed through on dry ground. It was the waters of judgment though. Those waters crashed in on the Egyptian army. Horse and rider were thrown into the sea. The people of God were delivered from judgment. You know, the Lord Jesus entered into the waters of the Jordan River And John the Baptist baptized him. John the Baptist pushed him under the water, immersed him under the water. But you know what? Jesus didn't drown. He came up out of the water. And he walked out of the Jordan River in the favor of his father. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was baptized. Have you ever wondered what in the world's going on there? Why was Jesus baptized? In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says that his death and his resurrection is his baptism. That means when he was pushed under the waters of the Jordan River and brought back up, that was pointing forward to what he was going to accomplish. It symbolized his death and resurrection. When he was submerged beneath the waters of the Jordan River, it was like he was dying the death of judgment, not not for sins that he committed, but he was dying the death of judgment. And then when he emerged from the waters, he didn't drown. 
He emerged unscathed. That was like his resurrection. He took the judgment for sin and then he rose victorious over sin and over death. And here's the best news of all. Are you ready? The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 says that we can join in with Jesus' baptism. You know, baptism is like just a living picture of what Christ has done. That when we, we join in with his baptism, we, we are buried with Christ in baptism and then we are raised to walk in newness of life. We are saying that we have died with Christ and now we live in Christ. That's what we're saying in baptism. But here's what I want to point out to you. When we baptize somebody up there, there's water, might be hot, might be cold. But that water up there, in the background of that water, is the flood. See, those waters up there, they, they represent God's judgment for sin. Those are flood waters up there. And when you're submerged beneath the water, it's like you are drowning in those floodwaters, that you have sinned against God and the wages of sin is death and you are submerged beneath those waters. But then when you emerge, it's demonstrating that you didn't drown in the judgment. Not because you weren't guilty, but because you were in the ark. You were in Christ. And you were raised to walk in newness of life. Listen, that's the question this morning. Are you on the ark? Are you in Christ? When the rain started, Noah's only hope was the boat. Judgment is coming. And on that day, where will you be found? Your only hope is in Christ. Not based on your good deeds. Not, not based on trying to be good enough not based on trying to attend church. Are you in Christ? The wages of sin is death. Romans 6 says, the wages of sin is death. And then we have that word again, that beautiful conjunction, the word but. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God told Noah, build a boat, get on it to be saved. God tells us, look to Christ in faith and walk in obedience and you will be saved from the judgment. Are you on the ark today? How do you know? Does your life, does your obedience demonstrate that? Is there somebody you need to warn that judgment is coming? Are there instructions that you need to give someone else that they might be found in Christ on the day of judgment? Are you prepared?